Welcome to Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Just to let you know, you can find this podcast on its host site, mormondiscussionpodcast.org. If you're a premium subscriber, that's the only place you can access the premium episodes. You have to sign in with your username and password and then click premium episodes. You can also find the podcast on iTunes as well as Stitcher. And please leave a review at those sites if you listen there. The higher the review, the further up the list the podcast moves in being accessible to other people who have not heard of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Also, support the podcast by becoming a premium subscriber today or visiting the bookstore to purchase books that will help you in your faith transition. Thank you. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to have you on today. Uh, today I want to talk about the flood, and I think that this is a pretty cool subject. It's one I've wanted to, to address for quite a while. In biblical Christianity, there is this idea that within the Bible, there is this thought conveyed of a global flood, a flood which covered the entire earth, which put Noah floating about on an ark for for 40 days, and eventually come, it rained for 40 days, and the flood, of course, recedes after much longer than that, and the ark comes to rest on the top of a mountain. Within Mormonism, in the Restoration Movement, we've got this, certainly this backing up of a global flood, and acknowledging that that's the lens in which we're going to see this. The trouble is that a lot of members, scholars for that matter, have a hard time making a global flood fit. It just doesn't seem to work as well as they, uh, as we want it to. And so today I want to talk about those problems, both with a local flood as well as with a global flood, and then share some thoughts. Let's start with the, the easy cop-out when one realizes that a global flood doesn't work very well with the data is to say, okay, it's just a, it's just a local flood instead of a global one. And this local flood, you know, while Noah talks about it covering the whole earth, that in reality, it's just what he sees. In other words, when he says it covers the whole earth, well, from his point of view, that's true in terms of a local flood, a catastrophic local flood. And so as he gazes around from anywhere within his eyesight in the range of those around him in his community, it the water has covered the entire earth from his point of view. When in reality, outside of his own geographic location, that's not the issue. That's not the that's not what's going on. So Mormons some Mormons will try to take this point of view, and Christians for that matter, that it was just a local flood. But within the Mormon restoration movement, there's problems with that, as well as within Christianity as well. Number one, Ether chapter thirteen verse two says that the floodwaters covered the Americas. That is problematic, right? If it's a local flood, why are the waters covering the Americas as well? Number two, Genesis chapter 8 says the ark ended up in a mountain. So if we're going to have a ship end up on a mountain, then the water needs to be pretty high. Number three, the story was written by Moses, who saw the history of the whole planet in a vision. We're told in Moses chapter 1 of the Pearl of Great Price that Moses saw the history of the of the whole planet, and yet he's the one who the five books of Moses are attributed to, and he's the one then telling us the flood story. So if Moses saw the flood in vision, 
and then reports on it. We ought to trust him as a witness. The next one, number four, a local flood would have made few, if any, animals extinct. Instead of bringing the few animals in danger to the ark, they could have just been taken outside the local flood areas. Number five, God covenanted to never do it again. There have been many, many devastating local floods since Noah's time. In other words, if God is making a promise that he'll never do this to the earth again, and then from that point forward, lots of local floods that are somewhat catastrophic happen, then that doesn't seem to be the kind of flood that God is talking about. And then number number six, the prophets, apostles, and official church publications have all consistently and regularly taught the global flood. They have never acknowledged the possibility of a local flood and have taught against it when it is mentioned. Now, each of these first six points come from a discussion board uh, member on the Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board named Cinepro. I, uh, I just want to make sure I give him credit for those six points. I also want to add a seventh. In Third Nephi, Jesus Christ himself mentions the flood. And, and so that also adds weight to it, that at least on some level that it is a literal story. Because the idea perhaps would be to make it completely figurative or allegorical. And I think there's possibility or room for that, but that we are going to have to deal probably with this idea that Jesus himself is testifying that the flood occurred. So let's step away for a moment from the problems of a local flood. And let's just say, okay, so what? Let's just accept that there's a global flood. And uh, we'll just recognize that the flood covered the entire earth by some unnatural means. But there are issues with that. And there's several points I want to make. Number one, the idea of building the ark. There's this discussion of how wood is not the best material for shipbuilding. It's not enough that a ship be built to hold together. It must also be sturdy enough that the changing stresses don't open gaps in its hull. Wood is simply not strong enough to prevent separation between the joints, especially in the heavy seas that the Ark would have encountered. The longest wooden ships in modern seas are about 300 feet, and those require reinforcing them with iron straps and leak so badly that they must be constantly pumped. On the other hand, the ark was 450 feet long. That's from Genesis chapter 6, verse 15. Could an ark that size be made seaworthy? And so the, the answer here is, well, if God is the one directing us on how to build the ship, then certainly God could very easily come up with ways that would be more efficient than we as humans have come up with to this point for how to make a ship more seaworthy. So there's one. Two, gathering the animals. The animals being gathered into the ark is is not this cut and dry thing. We sometimes don't think of the logistics of this. Some animals like sloths and penguins can't travel over land very well at all. Some animals like koalas and many insects require a special diet. How do they bring this along? Some cave-dwelling Arthropods can't survive in less than 100% relative humidity. Some animals, like dodo birds, must have lived on islands. If they didn't, they would have been easy prey for other animals. When mainland species like rats or pigs are introduced to islands, they drive many indigenous species to extinction. 
Those species would not have been able to survive such competition if they lived where mainland species could get at them before the flood. Could all the animals live near Noah, close enough to make this kind of a travel? There is a reason, for instance, why gila monsters, yaks, and quetzals don't all live together in a temperate climate. They can't survive there, at least not for long without special care. Organisms have preferred environments outside of which they are at deadly disadvantage. So there's lots of issues with certain species getting aboard the ark. The fact that these animals are still around today implies that they were taken safely aboard the ark. How did we get them there? How do we provide an environment conducive to their survival? And how did we provide the kind of nourishment and care that was required? Number three, fitting all the animals aboard. There is this idea of what a kind is, and perhaps that only basic kinds of animals were taken, so maybe just a couple of kinds of birds, and then evolution was allowed to take its course, and hence we have all the diversity that we have today. Scientifically, that's problematic, because there just isn't enough time to pass between the flood and present day to allow for that much uh, evol- you know, evolution to occur, that much diversity to take place. This, uh, this idea of getting all the animals onto the ark itself, uh, they couldn't survive outside. Genesis 7, 21 through 23 says that every land creature not aboard the ark perished. And indeed, not one insect species in a thousand could survive for half a year on the vegetation mats proposed by some creationists. Some creationists have have spoken about this idea that there may have been debris of plant life floating during the flood and that some insects could have survived on these vegetation flotation mats. That may sound like a quick, easy answer, but in reality, scientists say that that really doesn't hold, at least some scientists, I should say, say that that idea really doesn't hold very, doesn't hold much water, pardon the pun. So there is this idea that, that in the flood, anything not aboard the ark would not have survived. Were animals aboard the ark mature? There are some scholars who say that to, to get the animals aboard the ark, it would have been reasonable to use juvenile pairs of everything with none of them weighing any more than 22 pounds as an adult. However, Genesis 7-2 speaks of male and his mate indicating that animals were at sexual maturity. Now, again, that could be just a interpretation that we make. The scripture could be simply implying male and female, but that is some of the takeaway that some critics have made. One issue with putting juvenile animals onto the ark, that while some of these animals don't need parental care, they are animals that mature quickly and thus would be close to adult size after a year of growth anyway. In other words, if the ark is going to be floating around for months on end, then we ought to at least recognize that these animals would be developing and growing while they're on the ark. And so while taking juveniles may, for some statistical analysis, fit in the ark at the initial onset of the flood, by the time the time space is up, these animals would be much larger and it would be much more difficult to find the space for them to fit aboard the ark. Number four, caring for the animals. We talked a little bit about special diets. Uh, Many animals... Especially insects require special diets. Koalas require eucalyptus leaves. Silkworms eat nothing but mulberry leaves. 
For thousands of plant species, perhaps even more plants, there is at least one animal that eats only that kind of plant. How did Noah gather all those plants aboard, and where did he put them? Other animals are strict carnivores, and some of these specialize on certain kinds of food, such as small mammals, insects, fish, or aquatic invertebrates. How did Noah determine and provide for all those special diets? Fresh foods. Many animals require their food to be fresh. Many snakes, for example, will eat only live foods, or at least warm and moving. Parasitoid wasp only attack living prey. Most spiders locate their prey by the vibrations it produces. Most plant-eating insects require fresh food. Aphids, in fact, are physically incapable of sucking from wilted leaves. How did Noah keep all these food supplies fresh? Is another question. Now, I've heard it proposed that when these animals got aboard the ark, God essentially placed them each into a hibernation type of sleep where they essentially were unconscious and at a restful stage uh, until the flood came to an end. But there's other issues as well. Ventilation. The ark would need to be well ventilated to disperse the heat, humidity, uh, and perhaps the waste products. Sanitation. So if these animals are awake and they're going to the bathroom, that's obviously going to be a major issue. Some of the composting could reduce some of the waste, but uh, that would also require maintenance. And so how did such a small crew of eight people take care of all of the sanitation aboard the ark? Exercise and animal handling. How about manpower for feeding? How about feeding animals, realizing that how much longer it takes to feed an animal, especially if this food is kept fresh in containers rather than just laying in a big pile somewhere? Many animals would have to be hand-fed. Not all the manure and waste could be simply pushed overboard. A third of it, at least, would have to be carried up at least one deck, assuming that there are animals in the bottom section of the boat. And for those animals that died, corpses of dead animals would have to be removed regularly. So there are some issues with just the logistics of the the animals aboard the ark. Also, we've got this idea of the flood itself. Where did the flood water come from, and where did it go? Several people proposed the answers to these questions, but none which consider all the implications of their models. A few of the commonly cited, cited models are addressed below. 1. Vapor Canopy This model, proposed by Whitcomb and Morris and others, proposes that much of the water was suspended overhead until the 40 days of rain which caused the flood. The following objections are covered in more detail later on. However, was the water suspended, and what caused it to fall all at once when it did? If a canopy, holding the equivalent to more than 40 feet of water, were part of the atmosphere, it would raise the atmospheric pressure accordingly, raising oxygen and nitrogen to toxic levels. If the canopy began as a vapor, any water from it would be superheated. This scenario essentially starts with most of the flood waters boiled off. Noah and company would have been poached. If the water began as ice in orbit, the gravitational potential energy would likewise raise the temperature past boiling. How about a canopy of any significant thickness would have blocked a great deal of light, lowering the temperature of the earth greatly before the flood? So just kind of an idea, and there's others here in this document, and I'll share this document with this episode, but there's more issues with just the flood itself from the scientific uh, method and how things occur and, and what we're to make of this uh, this event. There are other ideas. I won't go into other ones, but there's other ideas of a hydroplate, uh, a comet, a runaway subduction. There's just issues with each of these. 
and so realizing that no matter how we want to come up with it, to place the earth with an additional 40 foot of water, whether it's coming from inside the core of the earth, coming from the atmosphere, each of those are deep, problematic, uh, and have conflicting issues with how to make those work. Number six, the implications of a flood. A global flood would have produced evidence contrary to the evidence we see. How do we explain the relative ages of mountains, for example? Why weren't the Sierra Nevadas eroded as much as the Appalachians during the flood? Why is there no evidence of a flood in ice core series? Ice cores from Greenland have been dated back more than 40,000 years by counting annual layers. A worldwide flood would be expected to leave a layer of sediments, noticeable changes in salinity and oxygen isotope ratios. Fractures from buoyancy and thermal stresses, a hiatus in trapped air bubbles, and probably other evidence. Why doesn't such evidence show up? Why is there no evidence of a flood in tree ring dating? Tree ring records go back more than 10,000 years with no evidence of a a catastrophe during that time. So we have issues with just the implications of a flood. The things that should show up in our scientific process, in our study of sediment in layers of earth that do not. Number seven, producing a geological record. Most people who believe in a global flood also believe the flood was responsible for creating all fossil-bearing strata. However, there's a great deal of contrary evidence. Why are geological eras consistent worldwide? How do you explain worldwide agreement between apparent geological eras and several different independent radiometric and non-radiometric dating methods? What does that mean? I have no clue. I just know it says it here. The extremely good sorting observed, why didn't at least one dinosaur make it to the high ground with the elephants? The relative positions of plants and other non-motile life. Why some groups of organisms, such as mollusks, are found in many geologic strata. Why organisms, such as brachiopods, which are very familiar, very similar hydronomically, they're all nearly the same size, shape, and weight, are still perfectly sorted. How coral reefs, hundreds of feet thick and miles long, were preserved intact with other fossils below them. Why small organisms dominate the lower strata, whereas fluid mechanics says that they would sink slower and thus end up in upper strata. So there's just this idea of if the water is this high, what are some of the things it would move around and relocate and cause to settle differently and why those things don't show up as they do. Again, the articles are very, um, it's using big scientific terms. I apologize. I don't want to sit here and try to look up every single term and try to give a layman's idea, but I will leave the document with the episode so that you can look up all of those as you as you see the need to do so. There's several pages of, you know, how were limestone deposits formed? Much limestone is made of the skeletons of zillions of microscopic sea animals. Some deposits are thousands of meters thick. Were all these animals alive when the flood started? If not, how do you explain the well-ordered sequence of fossils in the deposits? So this idea here is that if Adam and Eve are the very first human beings and the flood happens a few thousand years later, and from our present day we're assuming about 4,000 years ago, where is all the data for why we find fossils in limestone and trilobites and all these other things in various levels that they're found which don't seem to match up with this instantaneous date that these animals all became extinct because of a flood. And so the data just 
is very, I think, overwhelming that this kind of stuff just doesn't fit very well. Number eight, species survival in post-flood ecology. The Bible says that he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the ground. So if you weren't on the boat, you died. If the flood was as described, that must have been an understatement. How did all the modern plant species survive? Many plants, seeds and all, would be killed by being submerged for a few months. This is especially true if they were soaked in salt water. Some mangroves, coconuts, and other coastal species have seed which could be expected to survive the flood itself, but what of the rest? Most seeds would have been buried under many feet, even miles of sediment. This is deep enough to prevent uh, sprouting. Most plants require established soils to grow, soils which would have been stripped by the flood. Some plants germinate only after being exposed to fire or after being ingested by animals. These conditions would be rare, to put it mildly, after the flood. Noah could not have gathered seeds for all plants because not all plants produce seeds, and a variety of plant seeds can't survive a year without germinating. How did he distribute them all over the world? Right? So the flood's over, eight people survive, and yet we have a vast and diverse plant life that covers the entire earth. Did Noah hire, you know, 12 million Johnny Apple seeds and where did he find them? It just doesn't fit. How did all the fish survive? Some require cool, clear water, some need brackish water, some need ocean water, some need water even saltier. A flood would have destroyed at least some of these habitats. How did sensitive marine life such as a coral survive. Since most coral are found in shallow water, the turbulence created by the runoff from the land would effectively cut them off from the sun. The silt covering the reef after the reefs after the rains were over would kill all the coral. How did diseases survive? Many diseases can't survive in hosts other than humans. Many others can only survive in humans and in short-lived arthropod vectors. The list includes typhus, measles, smallpox, polio, gonorrhea, and syphilis. For these diseases to have survived the flood, they must all have infected one or more of the eight people aboard the ark. Now that raises a lot of other stories and questions. Other animals aboard the ark must have suffered from multiple diseases too, since there were other diseases specific to other animals, and non-specific diseases must have been somewhere. So just from a disease standpoint, it doesn't fit. How about number nine, species distribution in diversity? How did animals get to their present ranges? How did koalas get from Ariat to Australia? Polar bears to the Arctic? When kinds of environments they require to live doesn't exist between the two points. How did so many unique species get to remote islands? How were ecological interdependencies preserved as animals migrated from Ariat? Did the yucca on the yucca moth migrate together? Sorry, did the yucca and the yucca moth migrate together across the Atlantic? Were there a few thousand, were there a few thousand years ago, unbroken giant sequoia forests between Ariat and California to allow indigenous bark and cone beetles to migrate? There's just too many issues. Number 10, historical aspects. Why is there no mention of the flood in the records of Egyptian or Mesopotamian civilizations which existed at the time? Biblical dates place the flood at 1,300 years before Solomon began the first temple. We can construct reliable chronologies for Near Eastern history, particularly for Egypt, from many kinds of records from the literate cultures in the Near East. These records are independent of, but supported by, dating methods 
methods such as dendrochronology and carbon-14. The building of the first temple can be dated to 950 B.C. Some small delta placed in the flood around 2250 B.C. Unfortunately, the Egyptians, among others, have written records dating back before 2250 B.C. The Great Pyramid, for example, dates to the 26th century B.C., 300 years before the biblical date for the flood. No sign of in Egyptian inscriptions of this global flood around 2250. How did human population rebound so fast? Genealogies in Genesis put the Tower of Babel about 110 to 150 years after the flood. How did the world population regrow so fast to make its construction and the city around it possible? Why do other flood myths vary so greatly from the Genesis account? Flood myths are fairly common worldwide. If they come from a common source, we should expect similarities in most of them. Instead, the myths show great diversity. For example, people survive on high land or trees in the myths about as often as on boats or rafts. And no other flood myth includes a covenant not to destroy all life again. Number 11. Logical, philosophical, and theological points. So, for instance... All flood models consistent, are flood models consistent with the Bible? That's the question. Genesis 6 through 8 speaks only of rain, fountains, and a flood. It makes no mention of other catastrophes which many creationists associate with the flood. The proposed flood models not only contradict geology, they have no biblical support either. How can a literal interpretation be appropriate if the text is self-contradictory? In other words, Genesis 6.20 and 7.14-15 through 15 say there were two of each kind of fowl and clean beast, yet Genesis chapter 7.2-3 and verse 5 says they came in sevens. How can a literal interpretation be consistent with reality? How could Noah have gathered male and female of each kind when some species are asexual, others are parthenogenic? and have only females, and others, such as earthworms, are hermaphrodites. What about social animals like ants and termites, which need the whole nest to survive? Why stop with the flood story? If your style of biblical interpretation makes you take the flood literally, then shouldn't you also believe in a flat and stationary earth, which is also ideas taught within the Old Testament? This author of this document ends this way. He says, Another possible danger is that in presenting the gospel to the lost and in defending God's truth, we ourselves will seem to be false. It is time for Christian people to recognize that the defense of this modern young earth flood geology creationism is simply not truthful. It is simply not in accord with the facts that God has given. Creationism must be abandoned by Christians before harm is done. Another Christian scientist said creationism is an an incredible pain in the neck neither honest nor useful, and the people who advocate it have no idea how much damage they are doing to the credibility of belief. Does the flood story indicate an omnipotent God? If God is omnipotent, why not kill what he wanted killed directly? Why resort to a roundabout method that requires innumerable additional miracles? The whole idea was to rid the wicked people from the world. Did it work? The maintenance of modern creationism and flood geology not only is useless, Apologetically, with unbelieving scientists, it is harmful. Although many who have no scientific training have been swayed by creationist arguments, 
the unbelieving scientist will reason that create that Christianity, that a Christianity that believes in such nonsense must be a religion not worthy of his interest. Modern creationism, in this sense, is apologetically and evangelistically ineffective. It could even be a hindrance to the gospel. So that's his kind of closing quotes for this document. That just poses the issues. And, and so we simply ought to recognize that they're problematic, that there's not an easy solution for how we put this together and, and reconcile what the flood was. And, uh, and so with that, I want to go back to this idea of a local flood. One, I'm not bound to literal understandings of scriptures. I allow for at least parts of stories to be figurative. So with that, let's jump back into these seven ideas. Number one, these are the, the reasons why a local flood doesn't work. And I want to re-examine some of these premises or these assumptions. Number one, Ether chapter 13 verse 2 says that the flood waters covered the Americas. Fine. Here's the problem. Ether 13, while containing a history of people very early on, this is actually Moroni's words. And Moroni is looking at this after the fact, and he likely holds a literal understanding of the flood. It is very feasible, based on the language used and the history behind who is writing here, that Moroni is interjecting his own ideas rather than reporting on what happened in the brother of Jared's time. So look at, for instance, Moroni's writing of of the book of Ether. If you take out Moroni's interjections, there's not even one spot in the book of Ether where the native people claim to believe in Christ or be Christian. Rather, each time that anything is referenced to Christ, it is Moroni's after-the-fact interjection of those ideas. So that, for me, resolves number one. Number two, the ark ended up in a mountain. I see this as figurative. The ark ended up on higher ground. It ended up in a place where the people walking away from the ark were more righteous and worthy. The mountain is symbolic. I'm completely comfortable with that. Number three, the story was written by Moses, who saw the history of the whole planet in a vision. The the trouble here is that while I absolutely believe in a Moses, and I absolutely believe that Moses shared his story, knowing the way history has worked, I'm left to assume that Moses shared his story orally. That even if it was written down, it wasn't written down from generation to generation. At some point, it becomes an oral story. Shared generation to generation. By the time it is written down, I'm going to allow for the story to be slightly different than what we have. And I look at, for instance, the book of Abraham, when Joseph claims that these are the writings of Abraham written by his own hand, only to find out that that is absolutely impossible and all apologists within the church even agree with that. That this is a story that would have been copied over and over and over. And so we certainly allow for things to not be translated or interpreted correctly. Number four, a local flood would have made few if any animals extinct. This argument only works if we assume Adam and Eve are the very first humans upon the earth and that animals are placed in the garden and that's the first life that there was, that there is no death before the fall on the planet earth. I don't hold that view. I'm completely comfortable with evolution. 
which would certainly allow lots of different fossils and deceased animals to be found in the geologic record. And so number four does not bother me uh, at all. I also am okay with this idea that if the flood was local, and I'm saying the most catastrophic local flood the earth has ever seen, that Noah would have taken local animals aboard the ark, that he would have not had a need to get penguins and koala bears and various insects from other places in the world aboard the ark, that he would have simply been called by God to rescue the innocent animals in the area where this flood was going to occur. Number five, God covenanted to never do it again. There have been many, many devastating local floods since Noah's time. Again, being an oral story, this whole idea that God covenanted to never do it again, that may be symbolic, it may be allegorical, it may never have been in the original story to begin with. I don't know. Number seven, no, sorry, number six, the prophets and apostles and official church publications have all consistently and regularly taught the global flood. Yeah, it's called an assumption, and we make assumptions all the time. And unless Heavenly Father thinks it's so important that we know whether it was a local flood or global flood, when he hasn't chosen to answer on more important questions than that, unless God himself comes down from his throne and appears in the prophet's bedroom in the morning or shows up when the when the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve meet and says, hey, just so you guys all know, it was a local flood. I would fully anticipate the top 15 men of the church in the past, in the present, and in the future to talk about the flood and put it in the context of being a global flood. I completely allow for that. Number seven, Jesus mentions the flood in Third Nephi. Jesus' mention in Third Nephi is not of the flood as being global, just that the flood occurred. And so with that, my conclusion is that the flood was a local flood, but it was the biggest and most widespread, catastrophic local flood the earth has ever seen in its history. And hence, I think with that perspective, one can still find room for faith. One last thought before we finish up. Adam Miller, LDS scholar, author of Rube Goldberg's Machines, as well as a letter to a young Mormon, was recently on the Reddit discussion board and did an Ask Me Anything, an AMA. If any of you are familiar with that, I will include that here as well so you can check that out. Reddit is a wonderful discussion board. It's a place I participate in. Uh, by the way, just maybe to give you a heads up, uh, stay LDS. Dot com, uh, New Order Mormon, Mormon Dialogue and Discussion Board, FairMormonSupport.org, uh, as well as the Reddit.com backslash R backslash Latter-day Saints or Reddit.com backslash R backslash Mormon are all discussion boards where I participate if you want to kind of follow along with some of the things that I say in those places. I In some places, I'm pretty cordial. In one of those boards, I'm pretty antagonistic. Uh, but it would give you a better feel for me if you want to follow along in some of those. In this Ask Me Anything, I asked Adam Miller this question. Here it is. Knowing that both a local flood has serious issues in terms of the historicity of the restoration narrative, as well as a global flood has serious issues of feasibility, how do you reconcile such things without throwing your hands up and tossing in the towel on this narrative completely? Adam Miller answers, good question. I guess I don't consider it a big deal one way or the other with respect to the things that matter to me. So in conclusion, it's my hope that you not 
make this issue make or break. That you realize in terms of the gospel, whether the flood was local or global, has very little importance on whether the gospel and whether the Savior brings you closer to being like him and like his Father in heaven. I'm sorry if this episode bored you to death. It's a topic I've wanted to cover because I've always seen problems with both sides. And I've always tried to take the view that it was a local flood because I see the problems of the global flood as being way more encompassing and way bigger of a barrier to faith. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.